I didn't know I had any crowning achievements. <laughs> if you want to turn your Bibles to uh, John chapter 4. I was kind of speculating that if you, you know, when you first got your agenda and you were reading that, and if you looked carefully, you saw the title of this uh, presentation and you uh, looked across at the agenda and said, and it's going to be done in an hour, probably thought to yourself, this guy's got to be brand new. He's going to take on a topic that we've discussed, debated, and divided over for several thousand years and try to deal with it in an hour. So I understand that concern, and it's legitimate, uh, but I'm really not going to try to do that. When John asked me uh, about this particular subject, which is new, I've always tried to invent my own. I, I was kind of hesitant in a sense that I knew that's a very difficult subject because um, worship is something that uh, we perceive to be very personal, and in fact, there's an element of it that's true that way. And also, um, about the same time I had that thought, I had a secondary thought, and that is I have a, a real strong sense then and now that it, there is a great uh, deficiency in my own personal uh, if I was standing before God and he said, how'd you do on worship? I would not feel good. In fact, I'm always reminded, if you know that interesting story in Daniel 5 where Belshazzar and his groups having a good time and they decide to drink out of the goblets that they got out of the temple and the hand writes the inscription on the wall and there's one of them that's Tekel. And it says, depending on your translation, I think the New American says, you've been weighed on the scales and found deficient. The old King James says, um, you've been weighed in the balance and found wanting. That was my view of my understanding and application of worship. So as I went through the process, it's fairly normal when you try to tackle something like this. It's just a matter of, you know, try to look at every verse that references any of the terms that you're going to talk about and, and try to look at it in three or four or five There's, how's that better? There you go. There you go. This is, oh, man. Okay. Okay. Try it again. Oh, gosh, you can hear me now. I'm in trouble. So, um... What was unusual about it was, um, first of all, it, it, it took quite a while, and, and I gathered a whole lot more material than I normally do. Normally, my notes are, are very vague, and that's why it sounds like my notes are vague when I'm talking. But I, um, I, I looked at all the material I had, and I thought, you know, there's, I, don't, I don't know how to really make a cohesive discussion out of this. So what I think I'm going to do is a little change in format, is just basically kind of give you what I gathered up in a very condensed form. So you're going to have some information, you're going to have some definitions, you're going to have some considerations, you're going to have some questions, you're going to have all kinds of things. And, and when I made that outline, I know that, it, don't, listen, don't think I'm going to follow that outline very closely, but what I should have done is put about that term hindrances up, and that should have been about three-fourths of your page, because that's really kind of where, where I was, was moving as I worked my way through this subject matter. So... Um, and the other thing that's going to be a little different because of that is, is I'm essentially just going to just dump the truck and, and put all that out to you. And then, Lord willing, we'll get through in time that I can field some questions and take that on. But there is a, believe it or not, there is a kind of a continuity of this thing, and, and, and hopefully it will begin to unfold. And I'm, I'm also hopeful that you begin to see in that some of the things that Jerry was talking to you about today, especially the little flip chart piece of that thing in terms of how our culture has impacted a subject like this. So with that, let's have a word of prayer. <clears throat> Father, we acknowledge to you that apart from you, we can do nothing uh, as Jesus has told us. And we want to say that what we need now above all is clarity. We need clarity uh, from the words that would come through my mouth, and we need clarity as we not only hear but listen 
and as we were admonished at the very beginning, to listen with great eagerness and then to see if these things are so. And as we go through that process, the one thing that I would pray desperately for is that in that, Christ would be lifted up because he said if he's lifted up, he will draw men unto himself. We desperately need to be drawn unto you. So we would ask you to superintend this time for that purpose and by the power of your spirit to guide and direct us to your future glory. In Christ's name, amen. So I'm going to ask Tyson to read, and this is the verse that would be fairly predictable, a passage from John chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 19 through 24. And you can just follow along, and then we'll begin to come back and take pieces of that and work on it. Okay, got it. John 4, 21 through 24 says, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So what we're going to try to do is is we're going to look at just briefly what what I call in in that passage some of the primary issues, some things that kind of stand out to me that have a a lot to do with what you think about when you think through worship. And then we're going to just, again, have some definitions, have some information, and then we'll come back and touch on those again. And we'll go through that pattern two or three times because what I'm hoping you see in there is maybe a little different view or a little different viewpoint and understanding than you may have had previously about this extremely important subject. Um, I have, to, I have to tell you that I've been up here and talked before, and, and I've disappointed uh, Tom very badly over the years because I didn't have any visual aids. Uh, I didn't have anything on the screen, and I didn't ever use the, the flip chart or anything. So with the help of my son, I, I have one now. This is it. And, and that, that little cartoon has been in my Bible, stuck in the pages for 20-some years. And um, I just ran across it about two weeks ago. I thought it was very timely uh, because you have to have a little bit of a working knowledge of the Old Testament sacrificial system and the Levitical priesthood, which most people do. But if you look up right there on the altar, it says Insta Entrails. So so the advantage is if you ever thought about being a Levitical priest where you had to do the sacrifice and then pull the entrails out and then offer those as a, as a pleasing aroma and so forth. So that, there's, you know, I've always said behind good humor, there's a kind of a window into better insight. And so you've got the guys down below say, I hate modernization of the old rituals. And we have a little bit of that in us, especially guys that have gray hair. And then there, the other thing up there is that's a very telling thing in the subject is we want to, and we, we like trying to adapt uh, to make things uh, work a little better. I call that the expense of expedience, or sometimes it's the problems or product of pragmatism. But that there's some truth in, in both of those things. And what I, what I really want to focus on is the adaptation that we have to culture, what Jerry was talking about today. So we're going to touch on these issues. We're going to look at the Samaritan woman who Jesus is talking to, and, and she's kind of got a fixation on the place. And so do, so do a lot of people when they think about worship. They think of it in terms of something you do at a, at a certain time and place. There's a procedure to it. Jesus, Jesus saying, you're worshiping that which you do not know. Is there even a slight possibility that that's what we're doing? And then true worshipers. That one, that one just stuck over and over again. That and worshiping in spirit and truth. I'm going to talk a little bit about those things and then try to really ask ourselves, what, what would a true worshiper look like? And, and interesting enough, then, that the Father seeks. And then, finally, God is spirit. So in defining terms, worship in the Old Testament basically has one word, and I won't spend a lot of time trying to pronounce either the Hebrew or the Greek, but, it's, but it means to bow down 
or to prostrate oneself. In the New Testament, that word means literally, it's, it's proskuneo, to kiss, adore, worship. It's obeisance, it's fall or prostrate before. It's literally to kiss towards someone, to throw a kiss in token of respect or homage. In the Oriental custom, especially Persian, which is, by the way, one of the clues of how we get to these things, it was meant to greet persons of equal rank with a kiss on the lips, slight difference in rank on the cheek, inferior, fall on the knees, and touch head to the ground while throwing kisses. That's what that Greek word means that we see as worship. And the other one that we sometimes see as worship is theosibis, which is to, to reverence, godly, devout. And we're going to talk later on about devoted and what that looks like. Devout is, is it's translated in John 9.31, at least in the New American Standard, as God-fearing. So worship has a strong element of that. Another thing that we'll touch on. So just simple little considerations. It was interesting to me that worship does not appear, the term, until Genesis 22.5. And that, just for your reference, is where Abraham is taking Isaac to be sacrificed. It, and, the, and the idea of idol worship is not mentioned until Exodus 25, after God says, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. So the, so the one observation that, that has to, we have to start with is that men will worship, or mankind will worship, something in some way. Those, those professing belief in God may believe they worship the true God, but be deceived. In Matthew 15:9, also in Mark 7:7. 7, 7, Jesus kind of restates Isaiah 29, uh, and we're going we're gonna to look at that uh, a little later. So, uh, well, let's look at it now. Tyson, if you want to read Isaiah 29, 13 through 16. Then the Lord said, Because this people draw near with their words and honor me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts far from me, and the reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote, Therefore, behold, I will once again deal marvelously with this people, wondrously marvelous, and the wisdom of their wise men will perish, and the discernment of their discerning men will be concealed. Woe to those who deeply hide their plans from the Lord, and whose deeds are done in a dark place. And they say, Who sees us, or who knows us? You turn things around. Shall the potter be considered as equal with the clay? That what is made would say to its master, He did not make me. Or what is formed to say to him who formed it, he has no understanding. And, of course, that's highly condensed in the Gospels. It says, if you look at Matthew 15:9, But in vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrine the precepts of men. And I think there's, there's several key words in there, but I looked specifically at vain and precepts. Vain, that, that Greek word, in a casual sense, meaning groundless, Invalid, and in the final sense, purposeless, useless, futile, and according to the circumstances, it might be both. And one of the things that, that I found interesting is you don't see that term, vain, very much. If you go back to some of the earlier translations, King James, even the earlier you know, mainline translations of the day, you see that word a lot. You don't see it much anymore. In fact, I, when I looked, I think, in the, in the New Living Translation, and it appears probably about 10% as, as much as it does in the older translations. We like to think about that idea of vain. And then precepts means to change, to charge or command, a commandment, but emphasizing the thing commanded, a commission. Did you get that? A precept is something that emphasizes the thing commanded. What you really want to think about when you hear something that somebody is proposing has a doctrinal element or is, is like doctrine, and they're not just admitting it's a, it's a preference or a conviction, when they're doing that, you want to you think to yourself, who is the commander? In other words, where, who says this is doctrine? Because that's a precept. That's not doctrine. That's a precept. That's the difference. So here's a question that I got from, from A.W. Tozer. And I, and I think to myself, Tozer must have spent a lot of time thinking about John 7:17. 7, and if you're familiar with that, you know, kind of in a, in a modern word, it basically says, if you want to know if my words are true, do what I say. So, so I think he was thinking about that because he's got a, a, a line that's used a lot that's basically, 
raising that point of do you um, believe and then get understanding or do you try to get understanding before you believe? Well, this is a little different question I ran across, but we're going to massage this more than once. So I want you to think about what this, what, what this question says. Would you rather believe or know? Worship or discover? You get that? Would you rather believe or know? Would you rather worship or discover? And towards the end, we're going to, we're going to come back and, and try to make a little more clear what that distinction looks like. But just think about that for a little bit. Because in all, rea- in all reality, you probably fall in one camp or the other. I was thinking about the, the tip, I think you hear it up here in, in the times that I've been here, which is several, uh, a lot. Somebody usually gets to the Westminster Shorter Catechism and says, what's the, what's the question response? What is the chief end of man? Chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So I thought to myself, you know, I've never really looked at those two terms, enjoy and glorify. And I found it kind of fascinating to look at enjoy from the Oxford English Dictionary. It means to experience with joy to take pleasure in, to have and use with satisfaction, have the benefit of. The question for us is, is it head knowledge or heart knowledge? To glorify, which is doxazo, from which we get doxology, to mean to God, meaning to render glory to him. And note this, recognizing him for who and what he is, to celebrate with praises, to worship or adoration. So, if, if we're going to glorify and enjoy God, how, how does that unfold? And I'm going to suggest to you we're going to look again a little further down the road at the idea that if, if that's not kind of a, a, a more of a heart knowledge than a head knowledge to you, then your concept of worship might be skewed. Let's introduce, let's go back to those issues for a little bit. Let's talk about the Samaritan woman. Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman at the well. He gets into this discussion, and what she's, what she's saying back to him is that she thinks the issue is the place because they had built a, a, a replica of the temple as best they could on Mount Gerizim, and where Samaritans, had, I mean, a temple built like the one in Jerusalem, or was it the temple? Was it the temple there we should worship at, or was it really the temple in Jerusalem? I'm not going to get into Christ's response on that about, you know, you're worshiping that which you do not know, for we know that salvation is from the Jews. But that was what she was thinking really was the key issue of worship. It's, it's, it's the place. If we've, got, if we've got a special place to worship, then that's, that's got to be the central part of this whole thing. And he's basically saying, ah, you're, you're off base. It actually gets a little stronger when we look in Acts. So, he, he, he refutes that, but let's ask ourselves that question. In our mind, when we think about worship, do we see it predicated on being a setting or a set of circumstances? Do we see that that has to kind of be done in a certain place at a certain time for a certain reason? Is that the way we view worship? We, 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 go, to, we go there to worship, or we've got to be in this kind of a circumstance or situation or even mood before we worship. Is that our view of worship? That's the question at hand. You worship that which you do not know. And the question is, in what way do you know God? And as always, you hear this over and over again. It's not the question of whether you know God. It's the question of whether God knows you. You know, it's oftentimes you hear people over and over again quote John 10.28, where he says, And I give them everlasting life, and they shall never perish, and and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And he's talking about the sheep. But there's a really good question. Who are the sheep? Who qualifies as sheep? He does that in verse 27, the verse before. He says, my sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. So there's qualifications. There's criteria. Before you get down to, you know, again, claiming 28, you want to make sure that what he's really saying is, I know them. Because we can say, oh, yeah, I know Jesus. Well, yeah, or I can say, I, you know, I know the President of the United States or whatever, whatever you want to say. That's not the question. The question is, do they know you? And they say, oh, yeah, well, yeah, I know, I know him. That's, that's the issue that we're, that we're working on. So 
Uh, Tyson, let's do Acts 17, 21 to 23. Now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. So Paul stood in the midst of Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. Okay, and we'll, we'll massage this one a couple of times. But note about two or three or four things with me. First of all, what were the Athenians doing? And I would suggest to you they were indulging in Christian gossip. It says that they spend their time in nothing other than telling or knowing or, or telling or hearing something new. You begin to think about sometimes the way we learn. This could be a classic illustration of it. You come up here, you hear a lot of good things. You learn and you think, man, I, I learned a bunch of stuff. And I'm, uh, I can't wait to tell somebody what I know now. Well, but what, what does that prove? What does that really suggest? And, and again, we'll, we'll get into that more. The other thing is, did you note the characteristics that he said of the Athenians? He said, you're very religious. I notice your objects of worship. And I also notice that you worship in ignorance. Now, we're starting to get where the rubber meets the road now. But we have to begin to ask ourselves, how much like the Athenians are we? Do you worship that what you know? Very religious. You have objects of worship. We'll talk about that. Because of the, when we get to the more, more uh, normal definition of worship, you're going to see that this, and this idea of devotion, you're going to see that that's, that's really where we're going with it. So, here we go. Are you a true worshiper? Would you want to make that claim of yourself? What does that mean? Do you worship in spirit and truth? God is spirit. So I was thinking, again, primarily as Jerry was talking, a long, long time ago somebody said this well, well before I thought of it. He said the most important thing about a person is their concept of God. And everybody has a concept of God. The question is, how accurate is it? And along with that, I think a lot about the limitations imposed by our concept of reality. You hear that term a lot. I catch myself saying that a lot. Well, in reality, well, you know, this is, this is reality. Well, well really. In, in fact, I was thinking when they were um, talking, or when we first started about the website and, and the materials and having all the prior talks to this, if you want to get a, uh, and you haven't heard it, and you want to get a little better sense of what reality might look like, I would commend to you my brother Jerry's talk on that about two years ago up here. Find that on the website and listen to it. Because once again, if we don't see reality as reality really is, then it's very possible that we have a skewed concept of God. Then there's an inversion, as I call it, in our thinking. That well-known passage, God says as he makes man, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And I look at our modern Christian culture and I think to myself, no, we've, we've restated that. We've restated it to say, let us make God in our image according to our likeness. Once again, you know, you have to say, oh, that, that hurts a little bit. But have we done that? When you, th- when you begin, because a, a big part of worship, remember it said, you, you have to know who God is and what he's done. And if, you, if you're trying to worship and you, and you don't have some concept of the God of the universe, if you're not thinking in that way, then, then how can you be worshiping? No, what we're trying to do is we're trying to say, you know, there's a, there's a gap between us and God. Yeah, and it's, it, but it's not this. It's, it's a gap that's probably about the distance around the planet. There's, it's that much of a difference because, you know, God is God and we're not. It's that simple. So if we don't have that concept in our, in our thinking, then we're going to miss this important idea of what, it, what is worship. I read an, uh, parts of an interesting book 
It's called The Perspectives on, on Christian Worship. It's a fairly, fairly current book. Well, what they did is they, they thought they would take on by asking various, uh, you know, well-known uh, people around. I think I actually think MacArthur might have been involved in it. They wanted to look at the five categories in contemporary Christianity. And they put these labels on them. Liturgical, traditional, contemporary, blended, and emerging. Now listen to this quote. The last three have developed out of traditional evangelical perspectives on worship. They largely constitute late 20th and early 21st century responses to the received traditions of evangelical worship. Responses that arose out of the desire to adapt Christian worship to contemporary American culture. It's, it's instant intros. We're trying, to, we're trying to say, you know, we, we've got to improve our worship. You know, we can't be using that old stayed music. And we're going to get to that one, by the way. Can't be using that. Well, you remember the cultural Marxist idea? That was in the past. Therefore, we've got, we got to throw that out. We've got to do something better than that. Where are we likely to go to find music that we would want to use into our heads to find the music we prefer? Why do we have two or three different services sometimes? We've got the old traditional, we've got the contemporary, we've got the really super contemporary, and we've got the different kinds. Why are we doing that? Candidly, preferences. And that's what we do. We go look at the world. And by the way, that's been going on. That's why I read you that one definition. Our original concept of what worship and the idea of bowing down and prostrating oneself, that came from the Persian culture. That came from the pagans. And a lot of our concepts of worship, that's where they've come from. So we have to begin to see and realize and recognize that's what's going on. So once again, as I said earlier, it's kind of the expense of expedience and the product of, and the problems of pragmatism. So the idea that you worship that which you do not know, how does that fit? And, and what is worship? You know, that's the title. And we keep coming back, well, what is worship? If it's, if it's not some of these things I thought... Where's he going? What, what are we trying to do? And the original English word, actually, was worthship. Worthship. You know, we sing songs. God is worthy. Only you are worthy. That's what it, that's what it and they later shortened it to worship. So the question, back to the Samaritan woman, is, is worship a function of setting or conditions? Well, you've got to be careful. If you remember the first commandment, thou shalt have no other gods before me. And what do we know? As it's been said, men are idol factories. So it's very easy, once again, to make the, what I call the accoutrements of our worship, into idols. Well, we have a, we have a, we have a really, really elegant place to worship. We have a really, really good music when we, when we worship. We can get caught up in that, and it becomes, it becomes idols. So here's, here's some questions. By the way, these are questions I ask of myself. And, then, and then I thought the reason I would ask you the same thing is, is the old saying that misery loves company. Here's the first one. Do we repent more for what we do or who we are? What do you think God thinks about sin? Second one. Do we focus more on the belief that Christ came to save us from our sin or to free us from our sin? Is our focus on wanting to have the sins of our flesh forgiven? Or as the old guys would say, or to mortify them, to put them to death? That was part and parcel to what Cody was talking about early this morning. You know, if you, if you just begin to think about what's happened, and in, in again, in this, in this evolution of our Christian truth system, we begin to say, well, you know, I just, let me just kind of review the, the few, last few times I've talked to God in a, in a repentant manner. What was I saying? I'm sorry that I committed that sin. How, how many times are we willing to say, what I'm really sorry about is that I'm a sinner at all? And unless that be becomes our, our mindset, our view of this thing, then we're just going to vicious cycle of saying, well, you know, here's what repentance looks like. No, 
Cody was talking about that. Repentance really means a change of mind. The reason you change your mind is you have to change your thinking before you can change your behavior, your beliefs. To change, you have to change what you think. So one of those big changes has already been discussed is, well, I'm going to have to, I'm going to, have to do my part because I've got to have the Holy Spirit for sure, but I've got to do my part to quit thinking that way. To quit thinking about, well, I, I, I guess it wasn't that bad of a sin because I got away with it. No, you didn't. But if I, don't, if I don't see sin for what sin really is as God sees it, then that never really crosses my mind. I'm just trying to get the slate cleaned off again so I can move forward until I stub my toe one more time. Is the normal Christian a nominal Christian? And how do we understand the gospel? What is the gospel? How do I get a free pass? What, what's God going to be doing for me once I sign on? What is the gospel? This was just a little sidebar, but I thought it was interesting. I call this the influence of our translation, depending on what Bible you're looking at. It's a very common verse. We've, we've read it up here a lot. Romans 12.1, only this is the very tail end. Go there if you want to. The very tail end of it, but, but here's, here's the interesting thing. In the old King James, that final phrase is, which is your reasonable service. What's he talking about? He's talking about offering yourself a living sacrifice. And the, and the old King James says, that's a, your reasonable service. If you're looking at the ESV, it says, which is your spiritual service. And if you're looking at the New American, it says, which is your spiritual service of worship. What the heck? Which one, are we, which one is it? And it's fascinating because two things. One, the Greek word there for, um, the, there's two Greek words. One is latria, and it means to worship. But it's one of those words like, like we have a lot of in our language that the, that the meaning is based on the, on the context. So to worship was what we would normally associate with that. But the other thing it was is to offer yourself service for hire as a slave. And it meant one as well as it meant the other. So you could say a slave could go down and say, I'm going to go down to the center square and, and worship. I'm offering myself to be a slave. That's interesting. Because there's the, off, there's, the, there's the thought, at least in there, of service. Well, that's exactly what the King James says. It's your reasonable service. Why do they use the term reasonable? And why does the ESV say spiritual worship? Because spiritual is the Greek word logikos, which you might guess is where we get logic. It is the reason or the word. It's the, it's the worship it is to be understood as that service of God which implies intelligent meditation or reflection without the kind of heathen practices that the pagans do. So we have to ask ourselves a question. Do we have anything in our concept and understanding of worship that, that has a pagan orientation? Are we, are we mimicking the world and calling it Christian worship? But it's, all of those are correct it's your spiritual service of worship, it's your spiritual worship, and it's your reasonable service. But you can't separate service from the concept and grab onto that because we're going to come back to that later on. Okay, let's jump over and talk about music for a little bit. And this gets a little dicey because I refer to music as a high preference item. High preference item. If we have, I don't know, 100 guys in here, we probably have about 85 different ideas of what good music is. It's a high preference item. It's, it's, what, I, it's what I like, and that's why there's so many different types and styles and sound, all that stuff in music. But I want to just use for you, and you, and you may be familiar with these, the terms that Paul uses in Ephesians 5 and in Colossians 3, Ephesians 5.19 and Colossians 3.16, where he says... Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. 
I want, I want to look at each one of those individually. Psalms, Greek words very similar, psalms. To sing, chant, originally a touching, and then a touching of the harp or other stringed instrument with the finger or with the plectrum. You guitar players in the audience would call that a pick. Later known as the instrument itself. And finally, became known as the song sung with musical accompaniment. And I have a little funny story on that. I was um, playing in the guitar and singing in church sometime back in a church that I was involved in. And after the service, the lady who, who uh, did, uh, played the piano for us and came up and said, you know, I think it's good every once in a while to have a secular instrument in the worship service. And I could have said something, and I thought about it, and changed my mind. Because I wanted to suggest here, I'm playing my stringed instrument with a pick. You've got ivory keys. You're, you're the secular instrument. But the point is, it, there, is a, there is a very strong connection with music in worship. But we tend to make it something that's divisive. So let's go ahead. In all probability, the psalms of Ephesians 5.19 and 3.16 are the inspired psalms of the Hebrew canon. The words certainly designate these on all other occasion when it occurs in the New Testament, with the exception of, of um, 1 Corinthians 14, and that's where he's expanding on the, the utilization of the gifts. They are old songs to which new hymns and praises were added. Okay, that's psalms. Hymns. A song or hymn... In honor of God, whereas a psalm is a story of God's deliverance or a commemoration of mercies received, a hymn is a magnificat, a declaration of how great something or someone is. It is a direct asset, address to praise and glory to God. According to Augustine, a hymn has three characteristics. It must be sung, it must be praise, it must be to God. I've spent a little personal time on the last one. And just, just think about this for a second, because I think you've been in this position, wherever you are. We just, you know, we used to do this in this group, all sing together. Okay, the singing's going on. What are you thinking about? You're in your church service. The singing, you're, whether you've still got the book in your hand or you're looking at the screen, what are you, what's, in, what's going on in your mind? Oh, man, there's a bunch of things I can think of, you know. Why, why did they start in that key? That's, that's too high. What, what, why do we have to now see it on the screen? Why can't we still use the, the whole hymnal? Well, I wonder how I'm sounding. Do you think I'm a little too loud or a little too... Boy, that person in front of me is off key by about a third of a notch. And we need to get the piano tuned. That's pitiful. That's good. That guy plays the guitar pretty well. That's not bad. <laughs> Everything except thinking about God. And, and the way you do that, as best I know, simple as that may sound, is you have to sing the words. And what that means is you're totally focused on what those words are saying and meaning as you sing them. Now, now keep that thought in mind because we're going to come, come back to that and how significant that is. The word hymn nowhere occurs in the writings of the apostolic fathers because it was used as a praise to heathen deities. And thus early Christians instinctively shrank from it. Spiritual songs, that's a Greek word, ode. To sing in praise or honor of someone. The original use of singing among both believers and idolaters was in the confessions and praises to their respective gods. Paul qualifies it in Ephesians 5.19 and 3.16 as spiritual songs in association with psalms and hymns because ode might mean a song of any kind. Actually, I kind of was thinking about this when I got to walk up here and look around. I'm not sure if the majority of this crowd was listening to music in 1968. But if you were, you might have heard a lady by the name of Bobby Gentry sing a song called The Ode to Billy Joe. An ode is just a song. So the qualification of spiritual song, and so today now we, we want to refine that a little bit and say, well, these are praise songs. 
Well, I can, I can take you back in some, you know, uh, maybe, maybe 350 years to Joaquin Leander wrote a song called Praise Ye the Lord the Almighty. It's a pretty good praise song. Charles Wesley, 150 years ago, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. That's a pretty good praise song. Why are they suddenly praise songs? See, you, you have to think about what, what does our vernacular say about what's going on in our minds and hearts. That's my point. Well, let's talk about praise for a little while since I said that one. There's hundreds of verses re- re- referencing praise, but there's a whole lot more in the very current translations than there were in the older translation. If you just go verse by verse and look at, and look at all of the ones that have that word in there, there's a whole, I mean, if you're looking at the New Living Translation or something like that, there's a lot more of it. It's almost like eight to one as opposed to something like the King James. So what does that tell us? What's, what's our terminology tell us? And we have praise music, songs and hymns. Well, here's a, here's a fairly good verse for that. Songs of praise or hymns of thanksgiving to God are actually mentioned together in Nehemiah 12:46. Interestingly, at least to me, there are very few verses which mention praise and worship together. There was two of them in the Old Testament, both of them in Second Chronicles. The three, excuse me, there's three of them in the Old Testament. If you were going to, you know, develop your liturgy around one of them, I'd go with Psalm 66:4, which says, "All the earth will worship thee and sing praises to thee; they will sing praises to thy name." Three verses that have worship and praise together, and yet we say they need to be together. And I would suggest that's right, but for what reason? That's the question. Praise songs. I think, you, you know, what I've been thinking about, and again, the other side of what I was just saying about what thoughts are going through your mind when you're singing, is that I've thought a lot about, and don't get me wrong, I think there's a, a lot of good contemporary music, modern music, current music that's out there, but but I've I've been in a situation where I'm I'm watching the lyrics up in front of me or reading them out of the, most of them aren't in the old hymnals, I can tell you. And I'm, and I'm watching that, and all of a sudden I'll just stop. And, and what comes to my mind is, is two passages that I think you're probably f- fairly familiar with. One of them is Exodus 5, verses 4 and 5. Um, you, have, you have your Bible with you, Tyson? Let me, let me grab that. And the other one that, you, that you're probably familiar with is Matthew 12:36. And I say to you that every careless word that men shall speak, they shall render account for it in the day of judgment. Do you ever have that going on in your mind as you're singing the words that are coming across the... Because you know what I see a lot of in the modern world? I mean the modern music. I see what it's saying is, not what God has done for me, what I'm going to do for God. And I think you've got to be very careful because it, if I get that right, I think these words that, that were coming out of our mouths as we're singing qualify under this heading. Every idle word. So if I'm, I won't get too deep into it, but I, could, I think I could rearrange your thinking. You're familiar with the song, I Am a Friend of God? I could take you to a couple of passages where Jesus uses the word friend, and then I don't think he would want to sing that I am a friend of God. So think about what, you're, what the words are saying, because we're accountable for that. And that's basically, if you get to Exodus, go ahead. It's 5, 4, 5. Yeah. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you draw the people away from their work? Get back to your labors. Again, Pharaoh said, look, the people of the land are now many, and you would have them cease from their labors. Okay, that's perfect. I think I got the wrong passage, but... Oh, I know what I was after. And that is, the, obviously, that's the wrong passage. I was, I was thinking of the one where, he, where, he's, where he's saying, uh, be, be, careful, uh, be careful with careless words, because that's still a vow. And if you vow, you better make sure you pay it. Okay, so if, if I say to God, here's... Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to follow you all the days of my life. I'm going to praise you in the morning. Okay. Did I get that done? If not, then those are careless words. Those are idle words. So there's a very good term called vetting. When you think of the music you're singing, kind of make sure what you're singing before you get all wrapped up in just how wonderful the sound and the music is. 
Okay. Don't worry, we're getting, we're getting closer, and then we'll try to bring this together. So I want to spend a little time on, because remember what I talked about, devout? I want to spend just a little bit of time on devoted. And again, from the Oxford English Dictionary, here's the, here's the definition of devote. To give all or most of one's time or resources to a person or activity. Did you catch that? Give all or most of one's time or resources to a person's to a, to a person or activity. Remember back when, when when Paul was talking to the Athenians and he said, "I note your objects of worship." If you were watching a lot of of, of us today, what are how, what are we giving a lot of our time and attention to? Yep. It's got to be some kind of digital device. It's got to be something. Think, just take a little inventory of yourself sometime and ask yourself over the course of a day or the course of the week, how much time did I spend doing that? Because that is an indication of what you're devoted to. You know, I don't hear a term. I used to hear a term. You, know, you got to realize I'm older than dirt. But I used to hear this term all the time. They would say something like, that guy is a devoted father and husband. Don't hear that much anymore. What did that mean? He spent a lot of time with his wife and his family. He was devoted to him. That's where the time and energy, that's what, they got the best of his time and energy. That's what devotion looks like. So is God, even if you think we're worshiping, is he getting the best of our time and energy? Couldn't help myself. This is so obvious. No one can serve two masters, for either will hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Again, what are, where are your time and resources? What are they dedicated to? Same thing in, in 2 Corinthians 11.3. But I'm afraid that as a serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. And where do we end up? Literally, enslaved. Back end of Second Peter 2.19. For by what a man is overcome, by this is he enslaved. So let's talk about worship service. We could spend, again, the whole hour on, and, and, and more specifically, corporate worship. Because it is kind of interesting to me. I was just listening to a, a, good, a good series of discussions and talks on this. Um, but, you, but I was thinking about this. This was, uh, the guy was talking, William Perkins was a, was a preacher back in around the uh, 1590s along in there. And somewhere around in that range, he was, he was responding to a letter written by a guy by the name of Thomas Wright. On the, the, he was a Catholic priest and he was basically saying, here's why you Protestants have it all wrong. And he was trying to write back as a Reformed guy and say, here's why we don't have it all wrong. And one of the things he was talking about was, was the grounds of doctrine to be practiced. And think about this. This has been a while back. And this is where, and this is what I would call good liturgy. He said, here's the three elements that need to be involved when we say we're having a worship service, which is what most churches will say. This is our worship service. It needs to be, first, there is, it's in preaching, hearing, and reading the word. Secondly, in receiving the two sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Third, in prayer and thanksgiving, public and private. And if you think about what a lot of liturgical approaches are in churches, most of them understand that element. But think about why he was, why they were forming that kind of thinking at that point in time in, in church history. Because they were trying to, well, how are we going to, to, uh, to distinguish ourselves from what a Catholic Mass looks like? What are the elements that are, that are critical to this? And when you think about some of those old guys thinking through some of these issues and, and coming up with some of the things that we now uh, hang our hats on, it's a fascinating and little tiny things like, you know, what's supposed to be in the canon of the Bible. Okay, so we, we're going to kind of skip over the when, where, and why. I'm trying to watch the time, so we've got to go quickly. So... I was, one of the things I ran across a couple times reading was uh, the idea that um, uh, worship is uh, an act of obedience. And it kind of begs the question back to that idea of we're, we're here to glorify God and enjoy him forever. 
So we ask, I ask ourselves, because there's been men through down through church history that believed that we were created to worship. That, that is, that, that thought contains the idea that we're glorifying and enjoying God. Is, is it essentially a, physical, a philosophical discussion or is it essential to understanding and pursuing our purpose? And why do we think that's important? Because, as we said when we started, we will all worship something. And, oh, by the way, the most common thing that we worship is ourselves. How do our desires influence our worship? And I would say to you, the problem we have is a, a distortion of desires, again, over time, by, by culture. Our desires have been distorted. You know, most of you be familiar with Psalm 37.4. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Here's a question. What's the condition of your heart? Because the condition of your heart will dictate what your desires are. And oh, by the way, a changed heart is good, but it's not good enough. If you go to, um, when you, and you have time, go to 1 Samuel chapter 10, look at verse 9, and it'll tell you that King Saul, if you remember who King Saul was, the first king appointed because the people thought God didn't make a very good king, they needed one like the other guys had kings. So Saul, you know, was a big handsome guy, so they used him. And it says he changed his heart. But if you follow the track record of Saul on down the line, that didn't do very much. He also, it also says over in about verse 26 that he touched the heart of his followers. And they didn't end up very well either. So there's more to it than that. We'll, we'll say it and then we'll touch back on it. David in Psalm 51 says, Created me a clean heart, O God. In Timothy it says, A pure heart. We've got to go beyond a changed heart. Or, or when, we, when we say that God wants us to have the desires of our heart, We've got a distorted heart, and the verse was used earlier today. The heart is deceitfully wicked. Okay, let's get back to the issues and so we can begin to wrap this up. You worship that which you do not know. The word is, the Greek word is ido, meaning it's the know that means to be acquainted with rather than gnosko, which is to know in an experiential sense. A good question to pose to ourselves is how much of what we know about God could be inaccurate? And the second question is, if you were wrong, would you want to know? All true worshipers shall worship in spirit and truth for such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. First, what gives us a reason to conclude we worship in spirit and truth? How do you view the truth? How do you respond to truth? Are you more, would you rather worship or discover? Here's a, here's a really fascinating one. Are we among those who the Father seeks? Ever thought about that? God seeking somebody? It kind of reminds you of 2 Chronicles 16:9, where God says his eyes are to and fro about the earth that he might discover those whose heart is completely his. Yeah, he's, when, he's, when God's seeking something, I, I don't understand that, quite frankly. He doesn't have any needs. Obedience is an act of worship. Okay? What obedience? But here's a better question. Do you believe obedience is an essential component of worship? Okay, here we go again. It's this obedience thing. Yeah, I believe that's exactly what it is. It's this obedience thing. If it is, then what components? Here's the question I ask myself, and I'm very serious about that. I ask myself personally, and what I'm going to give you now is kind of a personal little thing I went through. What, what components would you believe would be evident in the life of a true worshiper? You hear that? What components would be evident in the life of a true worshiper? Again, remember, much worship is of the self. So here's the personal list that I came up with. The qualities, I call these qualities a true worshiper would manifest that would be evident and prevalent. First one, biblical love. Does your life indicate that you are doing, practicing, and understanding biblical love. Loving as Christ loved us. Is that evident in, in your life? What about sacrifice and self-denial? Do you truly view yourself as a servant or a slave? Humility. I can speak to this with some experience. Pride is toxic to worship. 
I don't think you can do I don't think you can do both of those at the same time. Walking by the Spirit, we've talked about that a little bit in our sessions. Galatians 5:16 and 25, Romans 8. Fear of God. This one always is a just challenging one. There are so many definitions out there about what that means. Let me try to suggest just two things to you. Fear and hope are two sides of the same coin. We hope in the direction of what we perceive to be gain. We fear in the direction of what we perceive to be loss. And if that starts to resonate in your mind, then, then it's easier to get what I think God's talking about when you go to Matthew 10, 28. You remember what he says there? Do not fear those who can kill the body, but not the soul. But fear him who can, can, can kill and condemn both the body and the soul to hell. And, and oh, by the way, same word, fear in both places. So when you think about what it means to fear God, do you think in the same way that what it means to fear somebody is going to kill you? Would you rather believe or know, worship or discover? Well, here's, here's why that makes a difference. Belief without commitment is passive. That's the message from James. If it's passive, it really functions as knowledge. And what, and what does knowledge do for us? Well, it does a lot of good things. But there's one little side effect that we want to keep in mind that Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 8.1. It makes you arrogant. What about worship? Worship acknowledges or identifies the object of your passion, your devotion. Worship identifies or acknowledges the object of your passion or, de or your devotion. Discovery, on the other hand, often leads to exaltation of the discoverer. You learned that going through high school history. Who discovered America? Who discovered Alaska? Whatever. We give credit to the discoverer. And we can get wrapped up in that. We can discover we're, with, we're Athenians. We're going back to, boy, if we can just learn some new things and, and share those, and, you know, we're going to be really, we're going to at least appear very smart. Let me wrap this up. One of the things I've done over the time, and, and I'm a little reluctant when I start talking about how to do things personally, but it's just been a strategy. When I spend some time memorizing a, a, a chapter or passage, a book or whatever, or spend a lot of time studying a, a topic, I would try to do two things. And the purpose of both things was to think about what I thought about. And one of them was... Um, to, per, to come up with a definition. And that's tricky when, it, when, it, when I start working on worship. But I'll give it to you. Understand I don't have a license to be right. Um, but here's, here's the definition I ended up with. True worship is a state of mind constituted by God's victory in the battle for the heart, permeated by gratitude, and manifested by the freedom and desire to give one's life to glorify God. The other thing I did, which is maybe a little different, was I tried to take, take what I thought I'd learned and turn it into a song. And candidly, I haven't done that very well in these last few years, but I started one here. I don't, I'm not real sure it'll ever get finished. But one line that, that came to me, I've gone over and over again in, in my head, and the line was, cleanse my heart that I might clearly see both your meekness and your majesty. I don't think it's on there, but if you can read, can you read uh, Philippians two, five through eight? Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Ever meditated on the meekness of Christ? 
Majesty seems a little easier, doesn't it? I was, I was thinking of this, and again, you have to go back a little ways, but I think it's about the middle 90s, 95, somewhere along in there. There's a pretty good little chorus. I think it was a, mm, Jack, Jack or something. Hayfield, I think, was his last name, wrote it. And it's just called Majesty. Majesty, worship his majesty. To all Jesus be all glory, honor, and praise. You, you, everybody hear, anybody heard that song? Yeah. That's great. But, but you know, singing it, that's good. But do we think about it? Do we think about this is the creator and sustainer of the universe that we're talking about? And I would suggest to you, if we can't think that way, once again, if our, if our gap in our minds is this far between majesty and meekness, we have a real problem with worship. Sorry, we're out of time. Let me close with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you that um, you give us uh, so much, and we uh, acknowledge at the same time we do so little with it. So we would ask that, and I would ask on behalf of these men, that they would look into this very uh, significant subject and and consider some of the things um, that might have been different from what their conception was, and that from that we might move in a direction of become, becoming true worshipers and those who worship in spirit and truth. Because again, you say we must do that. It's not an option. So we thank you for the time. Again, bless these men in that endeavor. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.